Hello, I'm Jason Black and welcome back to the BS for Bacon show. I'll be taking you behind the scenes of some of my favorite kitchens and sharing recipes that you should be trying at home. Today we've got a show that's fuller than a Katz's deli sandwich, but much easier on the waistline. And I'm going to get a little bit boisterous with the letter B. I'm going to be blathering on about bread, beef, and what I like to call the George Bush of vegetables, the Brussels sprout. J.C. Viennes, the wisest man in wine, is coming up in a little bit. In our alphabet soup of quirky food snippets, I'm going to poke fun at buzzwords that have been making the foodie rounds. Today it's the letters B and C. Chef Joey Surgeon Takis is our go-to gadget man today. He's talking about his favorite kitchen things, the microplane. And he'll also be sharing some thoughts on marinating. One of those techniques that isn't used enough. Let's get started with our resident wine man, J.C. Viennes. So, J.C., how are you doing today? I'm fine, Jason. You know, on the way here, I was thinking of our trip to New Zealand. I was looking for a story to tell you. And, of course, it has to be a story about Maria, my wife. I mean, the little devil. She's so lucky. It's incredible. We were visiting the vineyards on the South Island of, of New Zealand. First, we went to Marlboro. And to drive from Marlboro all the way down to Central Otago, the drive is quite long. So I decided to cut it in two and stay one night, actually two nights, in this uh, fishing lodge. And uh, I organized for a guide to bring us around uh, to go fishing because Maria loves, loves fishing. And so we are fishing all day long, fishing to this spot, this spot, this spot. We catch nothing. And then in the end, the poor guide was so desperate that he brought us to uh, this basin. And this basin is a reservoir for an electric dam. And so he said to us, inside this dam, there are 10,000 fishes. So if you don't catch anything today, we are very unlucky. But guess what? We didn't catch anything. And so poor Maria, she says, oh, it's too bad because my day, uh, in sandwiched between two visits of vineyards, we are catching nothing. And so the poor guy say, let's try one last spot. And then we go to this spot and we're launching, you know, sending the, the, the line in the water, catching nothing. And the poor guy's so depressed. And I said to him, ah, don't worry, let's go have some wine at the lodge. And suddenly Maria say, let me have a go. She takes the line, tow it in the, in, in the, in the, in the river, and she catch a one-foot trout. Amazing story. We brought it back. We smoked it. We had it with a beautiful bottle of Sauvignon Blanc from Marlboro that we had carried on our trip. And it was really amazing because this Maria, she always ended up catching the big fish. Wonderful. And on this trip, I mean, we went to uh, Central Otago after that, of course. And I, actually, I don't pronounce it right. Apparently, we have to pronounce it Otago. Otago. Do you know how to pronounce it? Central no, Otago. I'll, I'll trust you on it. Anyway, I say Central Otago and they say Central Otago. Uh, Otago is a, it's, a, it's, a, it's the land for Pinot Noir. New Zealanders are really well known for the Pinot Noir. In fact, absolutely. I mean, they have they are now developing an iconic style, an iconic international style, in the same way that they have developed an iconic international style for Sauvignon Blanc. Because Sauvignon Blanc, for example, the home of Sauvignon Blanc is Sancerre in France, and the wines are completely different than what we find in New Zealand. And the home of Pinot Noir is in also in France, in Burgundy, 
And the wines are savoury. They are um, restrained and very uh, earthy and and almost uh, f- like the forest floor. But when you go to Central Otago, and suddenly the wines are vibrant. They're fruity. They're deep. And in fact, they're so deep that they're also very dark in color. But the fruit itself is almost chewy, so it's so thick. And uh, there is a, a, a big following around the world now for this kind of style because the, the wines are approachable, and they are lovely, they're lip-smacking, and uh, I am sure that uh, this will become a very important category for for New Zealand. Is it, is it a characteristic of New World wines that they do develop those, those flavors? In fact, you're right. Eh? New, New World wine, people say they are fruit-forward. A wine expert will always say this expression to describe uh, the difference between new world and old world, old world being restrained. This is because, uh, first of all, I always say this, new world wine, they are selling you a grape because on the label, it's the name of the grape. Old world wine, they are selling you a region. So for them, the grape is less important than to sell you a sense of place. So when you buy a bottle from France, from Burgundy, they want to give you a sense of their tradition. They want to give you a sense of their geography, their climate, their terroir, as they say. But in Otago, they're selling you Pinot Noir. So they're giving you a sense of the fruit. And for them, when they make wine, uh, they make wine based on that vision they have of that fruit. So this is why the fruit is, is, more, is more obvious in the New World style of, of uh, Pinot Noir in Otago versus uh, Burgundy. And do you think the consumer's palate is more appreciative of the new style? I am not sure if they are more or less appreciative. I believe that there is a, a reason for both style and there is a, a room for both styles. I think that um, um, I think it's very important that when we are starting to drink wine and we are starting to discover wine, that we drink wines that are uh, uh, pleasing. They give us pleasure. And after that... As we develop this taste and this pleasure, maybe now we will search for wine that give us emotions. And so perhaps uh, certain old world style like Burgundy, Pinot Noir, they give us a little bit more emotion. And maybe the wines from uh, Central Otago being a little bit more forward in fruit, they give us more pleasure. But all of this is talking about the same thing. It depends what you are looking for, really. And so for me, I'm in favor of both. So this is not what I say to many people. One is not more than the other. Style is the key. And the key is what gives you pleasure and emotions. I want to ask you a bit about pairing food and wine. For Pinot Noir, if you have two very, very different styles, how are chefs supposed to pair the dishes properly? Uh, you know, Jason, this is a tough question for me because, you know, I'm a little bit unconventional about wine and food pairing. In fact, uh, this comes to me from my mother-in-law, Maria's mother. (laughs) I ask her, Mama Italiana, what's the secret of food and wine matching? And she told me, JC, if it grows together, it goes together. So that's the only rule that she applies, and it makes absolute sense to me. I think that we have too many rules and people are writing too many books about this just because they want to make things more complicated than they really need to be. And so for me, I I think that food and wine matching first 
wine should be matched to your mood. How do you feel? And after that, you choose the food based on how you feel. And after that, if you have a wine that makes you feel good and you have a food that makes you feel good, for sure you are going to feel good. JCVNs will be back next week. Last week, our good friend Greg Barmichaud road-tested the avocado slicer in his bakery. It wasn't a winner, with bridal registries calling it guacamole gate, as they've cancelled a load of wedding gifts. We should consider it our good deed to future avocado memories and marital bliss. I got a couple of great emails this week, thanks especially to Sue for the mail. She says, just like the avocado gadget, her husband Mike is also a pretty useless tool in the kitchen, and asks if we'll put him up for swap. She's after a blender, a toasted sandwich machine, or what have you. She says she knows that the beers for bacon show isn't that kind of show, but she'll let him go free to a good home. For today's gadget, I thought we'd chat about one that actually is awesome. Now, I'm sure you'll have seen the microplane in kitchen shops, and if you do enjoy cooking, the chances are high that you probably already have one. Now, I did a little bit of digging, and the story is very interesting. The microplane was originally designed as a woodworking tool, but one day... Way back in 1994, a certain Mrs. Lorraine Lee changed all of that. She was apparently a bit of a demon when it came to baking Armenian orange cake. And after getting the hump with her bog-standard, blunters Donald Trump box grater, she raided her hubby's tool shed in the search of something sharp to grate the skin off oranges. In the story, there was sadly no mention of how the cake turned out. But the rest, as they say is culinary gadget history. It's a great story, if you'll excuse the pun, with a less than happy ending for woodworking and Mr. Lee, who seems to have lost a cool tool. But let's face it, cooking beats woodworking as a hobby on any day, anyway. Let's head out and chat to Chef Joey Surgeon Takas about the microplane. It's his favourite of all of the gadgets. It's pretty much a uh, a, a fine grater where... Um you know, you can use it for cheese, of course, but it, I use it mostly with citrus. Okay. You know, um, and lemon. how different is it from other other graters? It, it's because it's um, you know the microplane. It's it's very fine, and it and it doesn't dig too deep into the flesh of uh, the citrus. So, you know, what you want to get is that outside layer, whether it's lemon, lime, grapefruit, but you don't want to get the pith inside yeah, the, the white part. Yeah, that white part becomes very bitter. So if you were to use uh, a lemon on a cheese grater, you would get that white part, the, the, the bitter part. And this just gets the outside. And it really gives it a nice finish to um, you know, anything you're cooking. Okay, so in, in addition to citrus, what else do you use the microblend for? Uh, you can use it for cheese. It actually, you know, doing something like an aged Parmesan cheese with a microblend, you get a really kind of light, great opposed to if you're using it with um, like a, a normal cheese grater where it could be uh, quite heavy and, and thick. Now they have different shapes of them. Do you have just one or do you buy all of the different shapes? No. Nope. Are they used differently? I just use one. Just one? Yeah, just one. And I think a lot of people know which one I'm talking about. <laughs> Hard to say which one, but it's a very fine one. The yeah. long one that looks like a ruler? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know what the original use of that was? No, no, actually, it was invented as a woodworking tool. Oh, really? And yeah, the history of it's quite quite amazing. Oh wow! Mm. Oh yeah, see, I don't know. <laughs>
My first, uh, my first days in the kitchen, it was there. Really? <laughs> yeah, I think so. And have there been any gadgets in any of the kitchens like Danielle or any of the other big places that you've worked where you've said, wow, I wish I could get one of those again? Um, a thermal mixer. We used to use a thermal mixer a lot at Danielle. And, and why haven't you got one now? I do. I do use it now. <laughs> I do use it now. It's, it's another way of keeping consistency. You know, using, you know, making something like a, for, you know, if you don't know what that is, actually, the thermal mixer is the, the, uh, it's, it's, it's pretty much a blender that also controls the temperature. Yeah. And, and it's really important for, um, you know, if you're making a different type of sauce, like a hollandaise, very, very consistent, always comes out, you know, pretty much perfect. And do your chefs make hollandaise, uh, by hand or do you use a thermal mixer? Uh, we use a thermal mixer. We use a thermal mixer, but making it by hand is very simple, and that is, you know, something that actually uh, our chefs know how to make it. Uh, um, you know, a bernays by hand, not relying on gadgets. You know, is um, it's really important that that all the cooks also know how to do. You know, their own sauces as well. <laughs> now you've set up kitchens before. <coughs> Have you ever gone down the road of buying? buying equipment, buying gadgets that you thought, oh, well, we'll use that in the kitchen and then they end up gathering dust? Yeah, yeah. Which, which gadgets Yeah, that's pretty funny, actually, because I bought um, I bought this one thing where it's like a, a nozzle that you stick inside of a lemon and you spray it. And I bought it thinking, oh, you know something? I put a lot of, you know, I finish a lot of dishes with a little bit of lemon juice and lime juice. And it would be pretty amazing if I was able to get the fresh lime juice. It's, it's, I think it's a good idea. But it doesn't work. It doesn't work. No, it doesn't work. That was Chef Joey Surgeon Tackers talking about the microplane and other kitchen toys. Please remember, if you do want some proper kitchen gadget advice, send me a message or post it to our Facebook page, Beers for Bacon. I'll tell you how best to use it or whether you should just turf the thing in the bin and save yourself a lot of grief. I mentioned earlier that I'd be all over the letter B today. I was in a bread-baking mood earlier this morning, so I grabbed another favorite cookbook from my bookshelf. It's called Dough, Simple Contemporary Bread by Richard Bertinet. Now, I've always loved bread. I love how it smells, how it feels, how it tastes, and more than anything, I love baking it. If you enjoy baking bread, or even if you've been in a bakery when they've just pulled bread out of the oven, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about when I say I love the sound of the crust crackling too. As it cools in the kitchen, just baked bread sort of whispers, go and grab the butter so you can eat me. Of course, it has that obligatory French accent. There's an exception to the accent rule when you pull little slippers of ciabatta out of the oven. You know those lovely flat loaves? They have an Italian accent demanding that you grab fruity olive oil and some mature Parmesan cheese. Baking bread as the process goes, is fascinating. It's three to four ingredients that are blended together to make magic. It takes a few simple, well-ordered steps, a decent oven, and you. Yes, you as the baker are a vital part of the process because you're involved in it the whole way. It's like baking pasta. You've got to get your hands stuck into it, and that's why it's so rewarding. To bake real bread, you have to feel it while you're kneading it. You've got to prod it while it's proving, and then you have to knock it back to deflate the air that's been created by the interaction of sugar and yeast. You'll feel the elasticity of the bread as you're developing the gluten. The dough will yield in your hands as you shape it into balls or roll it backwards and forwards when you're shaping loaves or baguettes. 
Bread dough is forgiving, but you do have to respect the order of things. In my opinion, those Ponzi bread machines just don't cut it when it comes to baking, so don't bother getting one. Please excuse me going off on a bread tangent. I should be doing a cookbook review. Right, if you do want to get stuck into a great book on bread, check out Dough. It's fun, the techniques are sound, and it even includes a great DVD that shows you how to do it. Something that was completely new, even to me when buying the book, was the slapping down of bread dough on the bench. Now, this is what develops the structure the gluten structure that keeps it all together. And it's a great way to make bread. The book is awesome because it has excellent tips right the way through. And a really, really good recipe that I enjoyed was the donut one. Another one that I thought was particularly good was the rye. And I think you should get practicing on rye because you can make a Reuben from start to finish. Bertinet's no slouch when it comes to baking. In fact, all of his books are great. As you know, Hong Kong is probably one of the toughest cities on the planet to bake in. The humidity is a serial killer of croissants and anything that needs a crispy crust. I've tested a lot of recipes from his books and you don't have to make any adjustments. They all work perfectly. Go forth, get yourself a copy, a few bags of flour and get baking. I was chatting to Phil over on the Morning Brew show a little while ago about my Reuben from Katz's Deli in New York. A few of the regular listeners put me right on the show. The deli is on Houston. Thanks, Howard. And yes, the Reuben sandwich does have sauerkraut. Thanks, Steve. I was in New York again this week and decided to take along my little recorder and get the lowdown from one or two of the other serious sandwich lovers in the deli, asking them why Katz's Reuben has stood the test of time. Some folks like to get away, take a holiday from the neighborhood. Hop a flight to Miami Beach or to Hollywood. But I'm taking a greyhound on the Hudson River line. I'm in a New York state of mind. I've been Katz Deli for about 31 years. Um, a native of New York. I'm from the Bronx. And every time I used to come from school and I used to end up coming to this area, I used to come here and get a nice hot roast beef, um, corned beef sandwich. And this is, this is, this is where everybody comes. This is where you get a good, good deli. This is an excellent deli. So the food is great, you know, the atmosphere is great. It's always been here. But if, if you want a sandwich in New York, this is it. This is the place to come. And what's your favorite on the? What, what are your favorite items on the menu? Uh, hot, hot uh, corned beef sandwich. Or Reuben. And you've been eating the same thing for 31 years. Basically, yeah, yeah. Now that this is when I, right now, I live in Massachusetts, and we're visiting, right? So she's never been here. And this is my fiance. Her name is Lucy. And uh, she's never been here, so I said, come on down and see what it's like. I hope the people in Hong Kong <laughs> get to know me good. Um, the taste is the best corned beef I've ever had, better than in Oklahoma. <laughs> Guys, do your favor, step all the way down. If you're waiting for waiter service, just take one step to the right. So when you eat, what do you eat here? Oh, pastrami on rye, sour pickles on the side, best sandwich in town. Thank you. You can drop it right there. Good day. Thanks.
I asked Jake Dell, the top dog at Katz's Deli, how much meat they go through in a week and also a little bit of the history. Uh, we go through about 15,000 pounds of pastrami uh, every week. The corned beef is, is the second most popular meat. We do about uh, 8,000 pounds a week of that. The Reuben is kind of the fake sandwich of the deli world. It's the modern invention of the sandwich world. Um, you know, you never had meat and cheese together 130 years ago when we started. Uh, but nowadays, look, everybody and their mother loves loves a Reuben. Everyone wants to come here and try one. They want a corned beef Reuben, which is the quote-unquote traditional one. Or they want it with pastrami, you know, which, uh, which personally I think is a lot of flavors all together when, when you put that together. But um, the Reuben is... You know, sauerkraut, it's melted Swiss, and it's our homemade Russian dressing on top of our homemade corned beef. Uh, and on the other side of this wall is where we do make the corned beef. We cure, I have about 40,000 pounds of meat in there right now at different stages of the pickling process. Uh, it's a little higher now with, with St. Patty's Day coming up. But, um, but like I said, we you know that's probably one of our more recent additions to the menu. Um, it was about 15 years ago. <laughs> and how many do you sell a day? We sell a lot of Rubens. Um, I, I would say, you know, we could sell as many as uh, 1,500 Rubens in a day, um, if not a little higher. Um, usually, the most popular, like I said, is just the pastrami. The classic is the pastrami on rye, a little bit of mustard. Uh, Rubens are now really growing in popularity, though. Every day, you, you see them more and more. Living vicariously is the best diet ever, so I thought I'd take one for the team and enjoy a double pastrami Reuben. Now, the secret to a Reuben is the pastrami. The beef is corned, then smoked very gently until it's tender. Rye is the bread of choice. You'll also need sauerkraut, Russian dressing, and of course, loads of Swiss cheese. Corning your own brisket is a lot less frightening than it sounds, but it does take at least five days. The meat is, in essence, submerged in a salt solution marinade with spices which flavor and tenderize the meat. Cooking it after marinating takes about three hours. Now, warm brisket is beautiful with boiled potatoes and mustard, but where it really shines is on a sandwich. Making Russian dressing is really simple. It's a combination of homemade mayonnaise, sour cream, ketchup, horseradish, and Worcestershire sauce. The spices of cayenne, smoked paprika, and toasted celery seeds add layers of flavor, and just a few drops of Tabasco give it a little heat. To make the sandwich proper, take a couple of slices of your favorite rye, add some thick pieces of warm pastrami, some sauerkraut, pickles, Russian dressing, and some melted Swiss cheese, and you are good to go. To make your own Reuben sandwiches at home, check out the Beers for Bacon Facebook page with my version of the recipe. Granted, nothing can replicate sitting in Katz's Deli eating the original Reuben sandwich, but it's close. On marinating, let's check back in with Joey for his tips from the Mr. and Mrs. Fox Kitchen. I'm in a New York state of mind. We do a smoked chicken where we marinate it in uh, water, rum, honey, garlic, salt, and soy sauce. And uh, we, we marinate overnight. And then we, uh, after, after it's marinated, we actually um, uh, do a layer of um, dark soy sauce on the skin. We just, we just pat it with the dark soy sauce and we let it dry in the walk-in box for a little while so the, the skin kind of uh, becomes a little dry and then we, we uh, smoke it. 
and uh, that flavor really, really is. It's it's pretty it's pretty amazing. That combination with the the rum and the spices and the, um, the honey, and it it really helps give a nice kind of um, finish on the skin because I guess because of the sugar and the honey. And then after it's smoked, we um, get really hot oil, and we baste the the chickens with it. And it really, again, because of the the honey. And, uh, uh, the, the sugar and the honey really gives a nice kind of caramelization on the outside of the bird. And is there any danger of over marinating? Is 24 yeah. hours enough? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, if you leave it too long, you'll end up curing the, the chicken. Right, last up on the list is what I call the George Bush of vegetables because it's despised by many, misunderstood by most, and even simpler than Sarah Palin on a good day. The real vegetable version Brussels sprouts don't get the credit they deserve. The thing with them is that there is no middle ground. You're either gung-ho, give me a double helping, or get that lot out of here. Here's my Brussels sprout recipe. Don't worry, I'll also put it up on the Facebook page if I speak too quickly. You need 125 grams of bacon, half a kilo of Brussels sprouts, preferably fresh, 100 mils of cream, half an onion chopped, a bay leaf, a little bit of garlic, and some salt and pepper. It's really easy to do. You bring some water to the boil, you blanch the Brussels sprouts, and while you're doing that, saute the bacon in a pan with the onion, garlic, and bay leaf. When the sprouts are nearly ready, add them to the pan, put the cream, cook it, reduce it, and you're ready to go. Actually, while I was in New York last week, I had a version of Brussels sprouts with a little bit of pear. It was absolutely awesome. It brings a little bit of sweetness and works a treat. Now, let's have some alphabet soup. We're on the letters B and C for our alphabet super foodie terms today. B is for bacon, and it's also for branded, a creamy dish of warm salted cod that's whipped with potato and garlic. B is for butterfly, a cooking term for cutting food down the middle, flattening it out so your dish cooks quicker. B is for bespoke. Now that's a great term for suits, but much less so for Sauvignon Blanc, so I wish people would stop using it for wine lists. C is for chasseur. Now, that's a classic sauce that's made with mushrooms, shallots, and wine. And yes, C is also for cartouche, a wax paper that you cut a little hole in the middle and put on top of a dish just before braising. Keeping with the Egyptian theme, C is also for curate. Now, this is something that one would do with artifacts, artworks, and objects of antiquity. Sadly, C for curate has become the balsamic reduction of food writers, horribly drizzled into every press release. It's time to put a lid on it for today and say happy cooking until next Saturday when we'll be back with some recipes from way back when. Yes, those dishes that are sadly no longer du jour. Plus JCVNs proving that varietals are the spice of life. Bye-bye.